Doris Kearns Goodwin has written biographies of several U.S. presidents. Among them, John Kennedy, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and Abraham Lincoln. She's a New York City native, an undergraduate from Colby College, with a master's and a Ph.D. from Harvard. In a 1994 Book Notes interview, we talked with Doris Goodwin about her book, No Ordinary Time, about Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt and their lives in the White House during World War II. I think what I wanted to do in this book was to understand not only Franklin and Eleanor's relationship, which has been looked at in many, many other cases, but to understand the whole extended family that surrounded them in the White House. And I came to an understanding that these two characters really both needed other people to meet the untended needs that were left over as a result of their troubled marriage. So what I came upon was a sense that the second family quarters of the White House were really like a residential hotel during these years. And there's about seven people living there, all of whom are intimate friends of either Franklin or Eleanor's. That was the part that was new and fun for me. If you had to ask a question of either one of them about personal relationships that they had with other people, who would you be most interested in? I think the person that I'm interested in for Franklin is not simply Lucy Mercer, who everybody assumes is the central romantic figure in his life because she had an affair with him back in 1918 and it almost broke up Eleanor's marriage. But there's another woman that I think had an even more central role to play in his life, and that was his secretary, Missy LaHand. She had started working for him when she was only 20 years old in 1920. She loved him all the rest of her life. She never married. And everybody in Washington knew that she was really his other wife. When Eleanor traveled, which she did like 200 or 250 days a year, she was the one who took care of Roosevelt. If he had a cold, she'd bring in the cough medicine to the White House. If he were grumpy during the day, she'd arrange a poker game at night. He had this cocktail hour every night, and somehow she'd be the one to be his hostess. She really was, on a daily basis, the closest person in the world to him. That's the relationship I'd like to know more about. Now you have in the book this second-floor scenario. Why did you put this in the book? Well, it seemed to me that what the reader was going to get from reading the book was, I hoped, a sense of what it was like 50 years ago to be in the White House. And because each of these rooms was occupied by somebody who was very important to either Franklin or Eleanor, their closest friends, in some case romantic friends, I wanted everybody to see how close they were, <laughs> to see that they could wander around in the middle of the corridors at night and actually talk to one another. What year was this? This was 1940 to 1945. So these rooms depict that period at that time. On the one end, um, you have Eleanor Roosevelt's bedroom and right across the hall is Lorena Hickok. Right. Now, who, who was Lorena Hickok and what was their relationship? And this was the second floor of the White House. Right. Lorena Hickok had been a former reporter for the Associated Press. And in fact, in 1933, she was considered the leading female reporter in the country. She weighed about 200 pounds, she smoked cigars, she played poker with the guys, and she was really smart. And what happened is she came to interview Franklin and Eleanor during the campaign in 32, and Eleanor and she became really close friends. She fell in love with Eleanor, and more importantly, she probably helped Eleanor become the activist first lady that she did. It was Lorena who came up with the idea of Eleanor holding press conferences every week. Only female reporters could come, so a whole generation of female journalists got their start because every newspaper had to hire a female reporter. She was the one who came up with the idea of a syndicated column that Eleanor wrote every day, missing only the day that her husband died, and really helped Eleanor transform the role of the First Lady from a ceremonial to an activist one. And in the course of that, she did fall in love with Eleanor. Eleanor, I don't think, fully reciprocated it, but they were close enough friends that she wanted her living nearby. So she lived in the White House the entire time during the war. 
Also on this second floor uh, schematic is uh, the, you have uh, a room in which Harry Hopkins lived in. And how long did he live in there, and who was he? Well, Harry Hopkins had been Roosevelt's chief New Deal man, in a certain sense, during the 1930s. He was the head of the Works Progress Administration. He'd been a social worker originally. But when the war broke out in Europe in May of 1940, Hopkins was staying overnight that night at the White House, and Roosevelt decided that he wanted him nearby. He didn't want him to go home. He needed somebody that he could talk to first thing in the morning, talk to late at night. And he made Hopkins his chief advisor on foreign policy. Hopkins went to see Churchill before Roosevelt met him, went to see Stalin before Roosevelt met him, was really unprecedented in terms... I mean, he makes Kissinger look like a mild-mannered guy in terms of the kind of power that Hopkins had. And he was incredibly loyal to Roosevelt. How long did he live on the second floor of the White House? He was there from 1940 to 1942, end of 42, when he got married. And Roosevelt was sad when he eventually stayed there for about six months with his new wife. But then she finally wanted a house of her own. Here's another bedroom. It's uh, called the Rose Room. And you see, show that to Mr. Churchill, Sarah, who is... Roosevelt's mother, the indomitable mother. And Martha. Right. Well, that's a pretty interesting room, that room. First, whenever the mother came, she wanted the best bedroom suite, and that was this room, the Rose Suite. She would come to visit him maybe once a month with her maids and her servants and always being a duchess in a certain sense in the White House. And then also Princess Martha was an interesting character who she had come to Washington during the war years in exile from Norway. Her husband was the crown prince and her father-in-law was the king of Norway. In fact, her son is currently the king of Norway now. She was beautiful. She was long-legged. Roosevelt always liked his women tall, or so it seems. And I think she had a gay, spirited kind of conversation that he just enjoyed. And Eleanor somehow understood that he needed that kind of companionship. So she would visit on weekends and keep him company in the movies, keep him company at dinners at night, often again when Eleanor was away. And this would be her suite. But when Churchill came, no one else <laughs> stayed in the suite. Churchill was an incredible character during this period of time. He would come and stay for like three or four weeks at a time, and his habits were so exhausting that nobody else could sleep during the period of time he was there. He would awaken in the morning and have wine for breakfast. He would have scotch and soda for lunch. He would have brandy at night, smoking his cigars until 2 a.m., and when he would finally leave after being in this suite for three or four weeks, the entire White House staff would have to sleep for 72 hours in order to recuperate from Churchill's visits. You mentioned, uh, you had it in quote marks in the book, that the relationship between Princess Martha of Norway and FDR was romantic. Some of the people who lived in the White House at that time suggested that she was his girlfriend, that there was a real flirtation between the two. And I suspect that that's what the element of the relationship was. It wasn't somebody he was working with like Missy Lahand. It wasn't some political partner. It wasn't some old friend and companion. It was a flirtatious relationship. Whether it went beyond, you know, kissing and romance and, and just a sense of pleasure, I don't know. But it certainly was that. Also, you show that Anna stayed in one of those rooms on the second floor. She's there in this picture in the middle next to her father. Uh, what was their relationship? Well, what had happened is an in interesting and I think in some ways some of the most moving moments of this period of time because Anna had originally been her mother's daughter. When Anna was a young girl and adolescent, Eleanor had told her the story of Lucy Mercer and the fact that her father had had this affair with Lucy long ago, and Anna had taken her mother's side. And over the years, the two had grown so close that they wrote each other letters two or three times a, a week, and they saw each other four or five times a year, even when Anna lived on the other coast. But what happened is, in the middle of the war, after 
Eleanor rejected Franklin's quest to stay home and be his wife again, he got so lonely that he asked their daughter Anna to come and take Missy Lahan's place. Missy, by that point, even though she was only in her early 40s, had had a stroke and she could never speak again. It was one of those devastating things for Roosevelt during the war years. And because he was so lonely without Missy, and his mother had also died just after Missy's stroke, he asked Anna to come and stay in the White House. And then what happened is, in some ways, she became his father's da- her father's daughter. She had long legs. She was tall. She loved cocktails. She could gossip at night with him. All the things that Eleanor never found it easy to do, Anna did. And after a while, I think Eleanor began to feel displaced by her own daughter. So it was a very complicated set of relationships that developed during this time. Where did you find (coughs) the White House ushers' diaries? This was one of my most incredible tools that was there for anybody to see. They're in the Roosevelt Library, and they're on microfiche. And what happened is, at the end of the day, there'd be a White House usher who would record everything that happened during the day. Roosevelt awakens at 7, has a massage at 7.15, goes to breakfast, and then they'd record who he had lunch with, who he had dinner with, and then you could use that as a foundation to go, for example, suppose he had lunch with Henry Stimson or Ickes or Morgenthau, I knew that they all had diaries, so I could go to their diaries to find out what he talked about at lunch. Or they'd record that Eleanor was with Joe Lash, and I knew that he had a diary. So in some ways, it was like the detective's tool. It was there for anybody to see. They're public, but they hadn't been used before. It was so easy and so wonderful. Quick definitions. Who was Ickes? Harold Ickes was the Secretary of the Interior, and he was called the old curmudgeon at the time. Morgenthau. Henry Morgenthau was the Secretary of the Treasury. And in fact, he's the subject of one of my favorite stories in the book, because Roosevelt had an annual poker game every year, and it would always be held on the day that the Congress was going to adjourn, and the rule was that whoever was ahead at the moment the Speaker of the House called to adjourn would win. On one particular night, Morgenthau was way ahead when the Speaker calls to tell Roosevelt he's adjourning at 9.30, so Roosevelt just pretends that it's somebody else calling. I'm sorry, I can't talk to you. I'm in the middle of a poker game. And they continue playing until finally at midnight, Roosevelt starts winning, and he whispers to an aide, bring the phone to me, and the aide brings the phone. He said, oh, Mr. Speaker, you're adjourning now. That's fine. Roosevelt Roosevelt wins the game. Total manipulation. Everything is great until the next morning. Henry Morgenthau reads in the newspapers that the Congress actually adjourned at 9.30, and he was so angry that he actually resigned as Secretary of the Treasury until Roosevelt charmed him back into it. But there was a real camaraderie among these cabinet members at the time. They could play poker together as well as work together. As a matter of fact, I remember somebody else resigning at one point, and FDR wrote him a letter, and then he writes back, I, I don't know if I can find it's it. It's actually. Where, and then he says, I got fluttery all over. People <laughs> I mean, it's talk a, that way? Amazing. I mean, that's right. I mean, Ickes resigned several times. He'd get upset about policy issues, and he would resign. So Roosevelt wrote him a very... Um, gracious letter saying, you can't resign, I need you, you're so important to me. And you're absolutely right. Ickes then wrote back saying, when I read your letter, I got fluttery all over. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) They did talk that way, and it showed the kind of uh, awe, in some ways, that they felt for this man who was still their president. They found it. It just says, your letter, Ickes gratefully replied, makes me feel all (laughs) fluttery. To have you write about me as you did is like an accolade to my spirit. And he goes on. (laughs) I know. Where did... Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt spend their time besides the White House and Hyde Park? Well, Hyde Park was the most important place for both of them. I mean, he went during the whole presidency something like 200 times to Hyde Park. 
So that's the most important place. How would he get there? He would get there by train. He would often get on the train in Washington, uh, maybe at 10 or 11 at night, and it would reach Hyde Park by the morning. So he'd be, so he'd sleep on the train. He loved traveling by train. He had his own compartment because of his polio and his paralysis. He didn't like fast-moving transportation. He hated airplanes, but he could feel grounded on the train. Eleanor was just the opposite. She liked to get places fast, so she only liked to travel by plane. Valkyl, what's that? Well, what happened is that's the cottage that Roosevelt had built for Eleanor. And the, in typical aristocratic terms, a cottage actually was 22 rooms. It wasn't a small little cottage. But what happened is in the 1920s, after his affair with Lucy Mercer, and they decided to stay together, it gave Eleanor the freedom to go outside the marriage to find fulfillment. And she became involved with a whole group of women who were activists, League of Women Voters, fighting for reform causes, child labor laws. And Sarah Delano Roosevelt, Franklin's mother, always looked askance at these women. They would come into the house with their saddle shoes on and their tweed outfits, and they weren't the kind of fancy people that she was used to. So Eleanor didn't feel comfortable bringing her women political friends to the big house where Franklin and Sarah lived. So anyway, what happened is Roosevelt, seeing how uncomfortable Eleanor felt about having her friends in the big house, suggested that he would build her her own cottage. And it turned out to be this beautiful 22-room house, about a mile and a half or so from the big house. And it allowed Eleanor for the first time in her life to have a home of her own. So she loved the place. And after he died, she actually lived on that place until she herself died. We need to get the Lucy Mercer Rutherford story down someplace here. But at one point, you, you talk about when he would go from Washington to Hyde Park, he figured out a way to stop and see her in New Jersey. That's right. She had an estate in Alamuchie, New Jersey. And he somehow, he, he loved to figure out maps anyway. He loved old geography things. So he figured out the, the railroad lines and knew that if he went along a different pattern, and he had to convince the Secret Service it was safe for him to do this, that he could spend an afternoon with Lucy. Now, this was not until the last year of his life. You know, I think some people had assumed, and myself included, that he probably had known Lucy all of his life. I'd heard about this affair back in 1918. I knew he'd seen her and was with her when he died. So I thought maybe it had happened all the way through that period of time. But the truth was that he had kept his pledge to Eleanor not to see her again, really until the last year of his life, after Eleanor had refused to be with him and be his wife again, after Anna had come back into the White House, and after he was diagnosed with congestive heart failure. And I think in that last year of his life, I believe he knew in that last year that he was dying. And he went to Bernard Baruch's plantation in, in I guess it was March or April of 44, to recover and it was there that he saw Lucy Mercer, essentially for the first time since 1918. And she had just lost her husband, Winthrop Rutherford, who had um, been a very wealthy businessman, come from an old family, and so she was widowed. And I believe when he saw her then that what it did more than anything was to awaken in him a memory of what it was like when he was young, before the polio. He had known Lucy three years before his polio attack, and now before his heart was giving way and he decided that he wanted to see her regularly. How, was, how did he start the original affair with her? She had been a social secretary working for Eleanor. What happened is when he was assistant secretary of the Navy, Eleanor and Franklin moved to Washington in 1914, and Eleanor felt worried about the whole social circle of invitations that you would get to go to because you had to know which A-list, B-list you belonged to go to as assistant secretary of the Navy. So she hired this young woman, Lucy Mercer, who came from a blue-blood family in Washington and yet needed money because her father had been an alcoholic. And so Lucy came three or four days a week and worked for the Roosevelts. And somewhere in that period of time between 1914 and 1918, a relationship developed between Lucy and Franklin. How long was the affair? 
Well, as far as we know, it was sometime probably two or three years in that period of time between 14 and 18, but it came to an abrupt end when Eleanor happened to come upon a packet of love letters that Lucy had written to Franklin. She later said when she opened these letters that the bottom fell out of her world, and she actually offered Franklin a divorce immediately, but I'm convinced it was the last thing he wanted. I think he had never meant for the marriage to be over by his relationship with Lucy. In some ways, I think Lucy's attraction for him was that she was confident, she was gay, she was easy, whereas Eleanor, during that period of her life, was still haunted by the insecurities of her own childhood, where her mother had told her she was ugly when she was a little girl, and her father was an alcoholic, and the mother-in-law, Sarah, was being intrusive about the kids, and it was hard for her to develop a full sense of herself. And so I think Franklin felt attracted to this happy young woman, Lucy Mercer. But when confronted with the thought of losing Eleanor, it was the last thing he wanted. When did people, back there in those days, uh, did, what did the public know? Did they know about polio? Did they know about the braces on his legs? Did they know about Lucy Mercer? Did they know about Missy Lehan? Did they know about Princess Martha of Norway? Well, this is one of the most interesting things to me in the world. I mean, certain members of the press knew about Lucy Mercer. They knew that Missy Lehan lived in the White House. They knew there were an unconventional set of relationships in the White House. They certainly knew that Roosevelt was a paraplegic. And yet there was then a certain kind of sense that a president's private life is his private life. And unless whatever he's doing has an impact on his public activities, I talked to one old reporter who said, who are we to judge? We're not angels ourselves, so it wouldn't be sporting somehow to report on these unconventional relationships in the White House. And as far as the paralysis goes, what astonished me was that the majority of the people thought, as I did, that he was simply lame. And the reason they were allowed to feel that way was that not a single newsreel ever showed him in his wheelchair, on his braces, being crippled. There was almost like an unspoken code of honor on the part of the press that the president wasn't to be seen that way. And if a young photographer came along and tried to snap a, pres a picture of the president, sometimes reporters would see him being actually carried from a, from a car into a building like a child. And yet they never took a picture. If a young guy came along and tried to do that, an older guy would knock the camera to the ground. So as a result, there was a kind of dignity to the office of the presidency then that I think is really missing right now on both the side of the press and the president. Roosevelt understood the importance of holding his private life secure. He would never have thought about talking about his mother's domineeringness or his, his feelings about Lucy Mercer. I mean, there was a reserve that I suspect served us better at that time. You also talk about, and it's been talked about before, you mean by volumes of Mrs. Roosevelt's daily column. Did she write it herself? Oh, did she ever write it herself? Oh, absolutely. In fact, if you read them, you can see the only way it was possible for her to write that column was really a, a recording of what she did during the day. And the only reason the column worked, because it wasn't high thoughts, it wasn't great moments of issues, but it was so warm, just as she was, and it was so full of activity, because her schedule was even more extraordinary than his. When you looked at those ushers' diaries, her daily life would be three times as long as Franklin Roosevelt's. She never stopped. She traveled to migrant worker camps. She went into the mines. There's those famous cartoons of the miners looking up and saying, oh, here comes Eleanor Roosevelt. She went to visit blacks in the South. She went to CCC camps. And that kind of traveling gave her experiences that she could recount in her daily column and just tell people what she was thinking and feeling as she met so many Americans in the course of her travels. What would happen if you took the Roosevelt presidency and moved it to modern-day America? Okay. Column every day, radio show, uh, you know, handicapped 
uh, affairs and all that, how much of this would still be hidden? It's really scary to think about because if Eleanor and Franklin had not been allowed that network of friendships in the White House that allowed them to sustain themselves while they were going through the difficult days of the Depression and the war, they wouldn't have been as strong as leaders as they were. I'm convinced that Roosevelt needed the relaxation, for example, as we said earlier, that Missy could provide when Eleanor wasn't there. But suppose the press was saying, well, who is this woman? She's his secretary. She's in love with him. What's going on here? At one point, Missy had been involved with Harry Hopkins. Can you imagine the press loving, oh, my God, Harry's living there, too. Is Harry involved with Missy? And I think in some ways that if we hadn't had at that time that kind of space for their private lives, they wouldn't have been replenished as political leaders. And so, too, now the paralysis is more interesting in some ways. You almost wish that Roosevelt had had the courage to go to the public and say to the public, I'm crippled and it's okay, because they loved him so much in part because of his courage and his strength. But only at the very end of his life did he ever give a speech sitting down. When he came back from Yalta, he was so tired that he finally excused himself instead of standing on his braces and sat down. And for some reason, that speech made an enormous emotional impact on the country because they then saw that he was conquering this disability. But at that time, nobody thought you could go to your country and tell them that you were a paraplegic, that they wouldn't allow you to be their president. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.